Hello everyone, the construction monk here. I am reading the book Prostitute, subtitled Calling a Wayward Church Back to Christ, and this is chapter two. And chapter two is titled Church Frog in a Separation Pot. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, let's get into it. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. It was a dream of reconciliation and freedom. You know, it wasn't just for racial reconciliation or freedom for one group of people. It was the belief that every person had the God-given right to live in peace. Amen. In 1963, in his August 28th speech at the Lincoln Memorial, MLK talked about that dream. In the beginning of that speech, he pointed to the man responsible for the instigating act meant to free black slaves, Lincoln, who stood enshrined in the monument behind him. But he quickly pointed out that, although Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had declared freedom for black people, 100 years later, that promise had still not been fulfilled. To MLK, the black population had been freed from one kind of slavery only to be oppressed by another. Mm. That other form of slavery was segregation. After Lincoln's Emancipating Act, no one could forcibly and physically enslave a black person. But those resistant to that freedom found other ways to enforce a new form of slavery. You know, it was a more subtle quiet kind of slavery. In fact, it was so subtle that most people didn't see it or agree that it was wrong. And because of that, MLK had an uphill battle convincing people to see the problem and to join him to help fix it. You know, today, I think the church is in much the same state. It's under a form of slavery it cannot see. 2,000 years ago, Jesus instigated an emancipating act to free all humanity from that slavery, but our enemy found another way to enforce a new kind of slavery. What is that slavery? It is the form of religion that lacks true freedom in Christ and from Christ. Let me say that again. What is the slavery that Satan has enacted upon the church? It's a form of religion that lacks true freedom in Christ. <clears throat> Man, but is it possible that most Christians, churches, denominations, and traditions have unknowingly participated with this more subtle form of slavery? Hmm. If you ask the average Christian today, what is sin what would they say? I think most Christians would say something like, sin is breaking God's moral law. God has rules, right? God wants us to keep those rules. And sin is breaking God's rules. You know, I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think it reaches to the fullest depth of what sin is. Most of what we think of as sin is actually the effect, not the cause. You know, God does have rules. Of course, God does want us to keep his rules, but he knows we can't. 
The reason we can't speaks to the fullest depth of what sin is. As it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, sin is any attempt to achieve a righteousness apart from Christ. Mm. The cause and the remedy of sin is something we often miss, even as Christians well steeped in good truth and tradition. The cause of sin is our inability to do what God says. But there's a deeper root to that problem. Do you realize that? What lies beneath the inability is our separation from the source of all that we need to be able to live a good, holy, and righteous life. You know, Jesus didn't come to the earth to give a more complete picture of God's rules. He didn't come to correct or add to God's holy law. Jesus came to show us a different way to keep it. That different way was Jesus himself. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And also, no one comes to the Father but through me. And that's from John 14, 6. He told the Jews, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have eternal life. That's in John 5, 39 through 40. Jesus placed himself at the center of what we need in order to fulfill God's holy law. To fulfill God's righteous requirements, we need Jesus. Amen. We need Jesus to save us, as it says in Acts 2.21. We need Jesus to make or we need to make Jesus our Lord and Savior, as it says in Romans 10.9 and 1 John 4.14. We need to take up our cross and follow him, as it says in Luke 9, 23. We need to be baptized into him and through him into the Spirit and the Father, as it says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's why Jesus makes baptism the central act of Christianity. In the Gospel of John, Jesus made this important distinction about our connection to the Father through him. He said, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. That's John sixteen fifteen. You know, there's this important interplay between the Trinity that Jesus draws attention to in the Gospel of John. All that Jesus has comes from the Father and comes through the Spirit. Jesus is like the connecting point between the Father and the Spirit. What we need are not better rules, but a better way to keep them. That better way is a better connection to God through Jesus. The essence of sin isn't just our inability to keep God's rules, but our attempt to keep them apart from God. That's why Jesus came to reconnect us back to the Father. It is through this reconnection that we are able to do all God desires and requires. And it's really cool. God actually does the work for us and in us as Paul writes in his letter to Philippians in chapter 2, verse 13. The only thing we need to do is accept, step into, and grow in our connection to God. God does all the rest. Woo! I love that. It's the function of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as John wrote in chapter 16, verse 8 of his gospel. When we try to deal with sin, righteousness, and judgment on our own, we do so apart from God. Mm -mm. Not good. It's not that God doesn't want us to have an understanding of particular sins and how to avoid them. 
It's not that God doesn't want us to understand his righteous requirements and how to better keep them. It's that he knows we can't do it apart from him. That's why Jesus' main mission was giving the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? You see, Jesus' death on the cross was auxiliary to being baptized in him. Jesus' death paved the way for his baptism by dealing with the penalty of sin that stood in the way of our reconnection to God. To remove the penalty of sin but not its continuing effects on our lives is only half of Jesus' work. God's rescue mission deals with our sins and their effect. To do with that, or to do that, God must first deal with the one sin that leads to the many. Hmm. Sometimes the church is good at helping us in our attempt to deal with our sins, but not in teaching us how to let God deal with our sin. See, there's the one sin that leads to the many, right? That one sin is separation from God. From that one sin come all the others. When we begin to let God deal with that one sin, it begins to resolve all the auxiliary sins that stem from it. <clears throat> Life apart from God leads naturally to all kinds of negative consequences. Trying to deal with the negative consequences <clears throat> without dealing with their root leaves us exhausted in a futile effort to establish our own righteousness apart from God. Dang. You know, this is often where the church finds itself, I think. And this is actually by design. This is the design of our enemy. To trap us in a form of religion that has no real power to deliver us from sin or sins. If our enemy wanted to enslave us to a new form of the same sin Jesus came to free us from, he would have to convince us that the resolution of sin is anything but a reconnection back to God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Satan would have to convince us really to try to resolve our sins ourselves through good works and good understanding instead of a good connection to God through the Spirit, right? You know, for a church steeped in the Holy Spirit, though, that would be hard. If our enemy wanted to re-enslave us to a form of religion lacking a true reconnection to God, he would have to enact a long-term plan to slowly squelch the spirit over hundreds of years in a way that most Christians wouldn't recognize. If he moved too fast or too quick, those acclimated to life in the spirit would notice, call it out, and the whole plan would fail. The plan wouldn't be to squelch the spirit directly. The plan would be to introduce a series of good ideas that seemed compatible to the mission of Jesus— that could slowly grow to eclipse our need for the Spirit over a long period of time until the active role of the Holy Spirit in the church was lost or greatly diminished. This plan would be like boiling a frog in a pot of water. If you throw a frog into a boiling pot of water, it'll jump out and escape. Ouch, too hot. Throw a frog into an even mildly hot pot of water, it'll still jump out and escape. It feels the difference, right? You have to first get the frog into a comfortable pot of water and then slowly turn up the heat until the frog boils to death without even noticing. Hmm. In this plan of Satan's, the frog is the church and the pot is separation from God. Hey guys, that was chapter two of the book Prostitute, subtitled 
calling a wayward church back to Christ. And chapter two was called Church Frog in a Separation Pot. <laughs> I love it. I love that imagery, right? You know, I, you know I've, I've studied culture and the truth is that movements in culture and history really progress slowly. And we can look back through history and see those movements clearly and see and label and categorize, right? But in the middle of it, it's hard to tell, right? It's hard to see how the church has changed over a span of 2,000 years, you know, in terms of our personal experience. Like we experience church and God and Christ today through contemporary understanding and, and concepts. But like sometimes we don't realize what the church was 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, right? Because we're so contextualized in our idea of church. And so this idea is that like sometimes it's hard to connect to how the church has changed over the centuries. And that's what chapter 2 is about. It's really a challenge to take a look at your Christianity and go, hmm, is this really what Christ intended? What of it is of Christ? What of it is not? What of it is good? What of it is bad? And so that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about like there is an enemy of the church who has a counterfeit church who is the Antichrist, right? And there are many Antichrists, but there are these false versions and like, it's like the weeds in the wheat. So it's like, it's about trying to really get a better sense of what is truly weed and what is truly weeds. And so that's what this chapter is trying to do. It's trying to challenge us, right? So it's something to think about. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. This has been a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, J. Randall Stewart. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com. And you can go on and read this chapter in the blog section on my website. Thank you guys for listening. I love you guys. Bye.